As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. You are listening to the C.S. Lewis Podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath, brought to you by Premier. I'm Ruth Jackson, and over this third series, Alistair and I will be looking at some of the key themes and ideas in the Narnia Chronicles. You can find out more about this series, as well as C.S. Lewis and Professor Alistair McGrath, by heading to cslewispodcast.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. On today's episode, we will be looking at the final book in the Narnia Chronicles, The Last Battle. Alistair, we have got to the final novel in the Narnia series, The Last Battle. Why does Lewis so often put wisdom into the mouths of characters who are vulnerable or perhaps less clever in the eyes of the world, do you think? I think throughout Narnia, we have this consistent theme that the little people, the things that people regard as insignificant, very often are the game changers, the really important people. And even though they are seen to be weak and inadequate and insignificant, God is able to do great things in them and through them. It's a very important theme for Lewis. It's also a very important theme throughout the Christian Bible. And tragedy hits almost straight away in this book. Why do you think Lewis didn't waste any time in getting straight into the kind of darkness of this story? Because this is a story about darkness. And I think, I think that's, that's just the point we need to make, that really um, Lewis wants us to appreciate the, the growing encircling darkness and make us wonder is there any hope how is this going to be resolved where is this going to take us um the previous novel ended with a dark episode and the darkness continues so if you like it's almost like storm clouds beginning to gather and you're wondering where is this going to go and is the confusion about the character of aslan ordering these awful things is that an allegory for something that was going on in lewis's time I think many people at the time were asking, well, why does God allow um, world wars? And of course, around this time, there was growing anxiety about nuclear weapons. You know, we could easily destroy our world. So if you like, there was a lot of cultural unease around. And people were beginning to wonder, you know, um, there are awful things happening in our world. Um, Is God causing these or is God able to use the things we have caused to bring about some greater good? So if you like, there was uncertainty around these questions. And maybe what Lewis is trying to do is to convey that mood and begin to engage some of those questions. Do you think it's significant that it is a lamb who asks the question about what the Narnians are to do about the fact that they worship Aslan, whereas the Calameans belong to Tash? 
I think um, the image of the lamb began to be highlighted in the previous novel. And maybe this is a way of trying to um, emphasize that um, that Christ is known by several symbols, the lion and the lamb. And Lewis Lang is beginning to raise the question of the link between the representation of God and the nature of God. And maybe one of the questions which he's raising is whether all human symbols of the divine, A, are equally valid, and B, do they point to the same God in every case. And that's a question I think that that really is forced on us by this novel and something I think Lewis felt we had to be aware of and give thought to. Well, let's talk a little bit about that because there is the prevalence of Tash in this novel. We obviously saw it a little bit in The Horse and His Boy. Do you think Lewis is echoing a prevalent view of his time when he says that Tash is only another name for Aslan? Is he sort of talking about pluralism? Does he have a particular God in mind? What, what was going on there? What was going on was um, an increasing view that um, all religions are saying the same thing. They speak of different gods, but actually it might just be the same god, different names. It's a form of pluralism, which is not just saying as a matter of fact, there are different religions in the world. It's saying more than that, saying they're, they're all equally valid ways to whatever salvation is. doesn't matter what name you know. Use a name that works for you. But basically, if you like, it's a rather bland, rather insipid pluralism. And Lewis just felt that this needed to be interrogated. You know, words are coming from, words that take us. Some people have suggested that there are hints of Islamophobia with this. Um, I guess they would equate Tash with the God of Islam. Would you agree with that? I don't think so. I think that um, you might say that Lewis's physical descriptions of the Calamines um, suggest they are clearly from another part of the world other than Britain or the United States. But in terms of the practices and beliefs that he talks about, even though these are rather underdeveloped, there's no indication really that you can match these up with any other particular religion. I think what, you, what I would suggest you, we do is think of um, Tash as a religious other, not a specific religion, but rather something other than Christianity. And Lewis, I think, doesn't really want to take it further than that, because one of the points he wants to make is that actually we cannot really... Uh, take this point seriously that we're simply using different names to refer to exactly the same divinity or way of thinking about the world. Why when people call on Aslan is it often them that are changed rather than their situation? Is is Lewis trying to give some sort of encouragement or pastoral insight here do you think? I think one of the things that uh, Lewis talks about a lot is the way in which the Christian faith changes the way in which we see things. In other words, very often you are in a situation and you reappraise it or you revalorize it. You see it in a new way. And obviously that might lead you to be able to change it quite radically. But what Lewis is saying is that, that there may be times when God saves us by, in effect, extricating us from dangerous situations. But there are other times where God enables us to see things in new ways and that means being able to use the circumstances to move things in a different good direction in other words you become aware of new possibilities so for example i mean lewis may well have the crucifixion of christ uh, as an example you know you look at this you see oh dear that is simply the death of a very important person or it might be this is the means by which god has 
brought about salvation. So, again, it's a very important point for Lewis. The Christianity enables us to see the world, to see this ourselves, and to see situations in a new way. Do you think Lewis had a particular contemporary situation in mind when he says Tyrion had never dreamed that one of the results of an ape's setting up as a false Aslan would be to stop people from believing in the real one? Um, there are several things he may be hinting at here. And again, it's very, very difficult sometimes to know what Lewis actually had in man mind. But after the Second World War, there were attempts to invent universal languages or invent universal religions. In other words, ways of kind of saying, well, we used to think like this or speak like this, but here's a way of minimizing um, the disagreements and divergences in this by having some universal thing, which is actually a human invention. And Lewis, I think, was aware of some of these trends and uh, felt that it needed to be called into question. And do you think the cat and Rishta Tarkan, who don't believe in either Tash or Aslan, are meant to represent a particular personal philosophy at, in, in Lewis's time? I think Lewis is, is simply bringing out the point that uh, that there's, if you like, um, a huge diversity of beliefs, some of which we regard as being mad, sometimes slightly more plausible, and trying to bring out the point that actually we are in a position where the old certainties have gone. There are all sorts of new things springing up, and we have to say, well, where are we? What can we trust in this very confusing time? So I suggest we see it not so much as any particular uh, as referring to some specific person of philosophy, rather the sense of uh, we're all over the place. You know, what can we trust? Uh, what's happened to things? Where are we going? A sense of almost confusion and desperation. And thus as setting the context for the question of sorting everything out. But presumably Lewis wouldn't agree with their comment that all who are enlightened know that Aslan and Tash don't exist. No, I think Lewis would agree with that at all. I think Lewis is... Lewis very often is not telling us answers. Very often he's raising issues for discussion while hinting at the view he takes and would like us to take. Why does it always seem to be people from the outside coming into Narnia to, to save what's going on there? And, and I guess particularly, why is it always children coming from the outside? Well, I guess one of the things that Lewis keeps coming back to is that we can't save ourselves. We have to be saved from somebody on the outside. And we've seen this quite a lot. For example, we spoke about this in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and we see it here as well. It's this basic idea that we cannot change the course of history. We cannot make things better. We are deeply frustrated. We need someone from outside our situation to enter into our situation and transform it in that way. In other words, human beings are not able to um, to redeem themselves or their situations. Do you think Lewis is thinking of a particular contemporary parallel when he says, by mixing a little truth with it, they made their lie far stronger? Is there anything he's thinking of in particular? I think Lewis is, is, is um, making the general point that um, if you have a philosophy or a worldview, which is frankly incredible, if there's something in it which rings true or which clearly is based on something that's reliable, you tend to fasten on to that and hold on to that. And by by allowing that part of it to gain a hold within you, 
the rest can begin to find its way in. I think Lewis is not endorsing this. He's just observing that this seems to be the way things happen. And of course, for Lewis, it's very important in his own apologetics, because for Lewis, one of the things you have to try and do is work out how Christianity connects up with people. In other words, which part of it does have the deepest resonance or appeal for people, because that will help them begin to um, explore what remains. So they can see the relevance of this bit and thus they begin to explore what else is there as well. Now, to a contemporary reader, the dwarfs might seem racist. They they call the calamines what seems to be a derogatory word based on their colour of their skin. Is Lewis trying to teach us anything through this? Like, how, how does he want us to respond to this? I think Lewis is simply bringing out the point that um, there is a natural human instinct to reject the other, whether the other is defined by race or by beliefs or by physical stature. Remember, they're dwarfs. Um, So I think there's a very important point to make there that Lewis is really raising questions about whether we need to challenge these basic human instincts, understandable though they may be. And do you think they would have represented anyone in particular in Lewis's mind? I think Lewis probably had some people in mind. Um, It may well be that there are certain uh, prominent public speakers who he felt were particularly um, worrying. Uh, He may be thinking, for example, of before the Second World War, uh, Hitler, or you may think of Oswald Mosley in England, but certainly he would have had no shortage of people to draw on to um, illustrate the kind of views he clearly wants to condemn. And why do you think the tone of this book is so sombre and serious compared to some of the others? Well, it's it's very dark, um, right from the beginning, right the way through. Um, And I think it does reflect in some way um, the growing cultural mood in Britain whereby, you know, oh, we've won the Second World War. Oh, everybody's happy now. It's going to be wonderful. Oh, oh, there's this thing called the Cold War. Oh, this might become a nuclear war. Oh, what do we do? You know, it it, it really is a sense of things are just not getting better. They're out of control. What do we do? If you like, there's a darkening in this novel, which I think reflects the darkening of the cultural mood um, after the Second World War. We touched on this ever so slightly in the first episode, but what has happened to Susan? Why, why is she no longer a friend of Narnia? Well, this is a bit of a mystery, I have to say. Um, I mean, I, my own feeling is that Lewis really loses interest in her. I mean, if you think of the, the four Pevensey children, I mean, Lucy is clearly the favourite. And maybe in writing the stories, Lewis overinvested in her and didn't really have anything left <laughs> to, to, to give to Susan. I, I really don't know. I mean, the most obvious explanation, I'm afraid, is simply that Lewis felt that she was redundant, that actually she had lost um, any interest for him. But I have to say, I don't know. And what I do not think is it because he had turned against her for some reason. I think it's just that he kind of had lost had lost a sense of the role she would play in the overall narrative trajectory. Do you think there's anything that he's trying to say by the fact that she doesn't end up in this paradise where everyone else does? I mean, is that is that harsh? Is it based on something she's done or do, we just don't know? We don't know. I mean, some would say, well, look, um, you know, she didn't really want to be involved in this for some reason. So 
she wasn't forced to take part in this. You know, if you, it's, it's a sense that there's no way in which God forces people into heaven. Maybe that's what he's getting at. But again, I have to say that, um, you know, there's, there's some things I, I can understand in Lewis. There's some things in Lewis that puzzle me. This is one of the things that puzzled me. Now, we obviously see Christian imagery throughout the Chronicles of Narnia, but there's um, quite a few lines in this one that seem pretty explicit. So Lucy says, in our world, too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. Do you think Lewis is intentionally being more explicit because it's the final book? I think, I think that's probably right. I mean, I mean, throughout the whole series, I mean, there's this uh, constant... Um, reiteration of the theme look um this is what might have happened if the incarnation took place in narnia how does this help us how they understand how the incarnation happened on earth and therefore lewis often makes very subtle connections this one's quite explicit i think the obvious reason is it's getting towards the end of the narrative and lewis feels that he needs to be a bit more explicit at this late point in the story a large part of the story is taken up with the sort of the image of heaven and paradise but do you think the description of the dwarf staying in the dingy stable is in any way of a, a depiction of hell for lewis i don't think it is i mean it could be and and you you might make connections between um lewis's um description here and some of the themes we find in dante's divine comedy which lewis was very very fond of i think it's much more that um they stay where they were. In effect, uh, they are being offered something more wonderful. And they say, no, we're happy here. You know, and, and, and I think what, what Lewis is really doing is trying to make the point that some people simply fail to grasp this vision. Now, obviously, um, within the narrative itself, that, that, that plays a, a significant role. But as we read this narrative, one of the questions I find myself asking is, well, what could be done to say, to try and help these people realize that this dingy stable is not the end of things. Actually, there's a bigger vision. You know, actually, to me, it, it raises this deep question of what could have been done to kind of give them a vision of something beyond the stable. What do you think Lewis is trying to say by suggesting that one of the dwarves who helped to kill the talking horses seems to have ended up in paradise? Well, again, that's uh, a very interesting question because Lewis doesn't unpack that. Um, we're not really told what his thinking is at this point, and we can um, have some great fun trying to work out what it might be. Um, let me just run some obvious possibilities past you. One is that there's some kind of repentance here that we don't know about. Uh, another might be that there are no limits to God's saving capacities. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I think that what I take away from this is just that um, it's um, uh, something that I think John Wesley said, um, uh, that very often, you know, you, you were surprised who ended up in heaven. <laughs> and um, that uh, I think that, that that is something that we need to think about. Um, you know, why should we be surprised? Um, because God actually may see things we don't see. And very often we judge by our standards and by what we see so if you like maybe lewis just saying look maybe it's not quite as straightforward as we think but let's leave this to god i suppose as well as eustace says it was no business of his and it's no business of ours either um, let's talk a little bit about the quote from jewel the unicorn where he says i've come home at last this is my real country i belong here this is the land i've been looking for all my life though i never knew it come further up come further in what's he saying there 
Well, I think this is probably the standard quote from um, The Last Battle. It's the one that I think in conversation with uh, people who enjoy Lewis that they raise the most often. I think it's, I think it's very, very powerful. It is, in effect, saying, look, um, I didn't really know I had a home. I didn't know is this wonderful. Now I've seen it. Oh, my goodness. It's amazing. Um, I've been looking for this all my life. I didn't realize it. And it's a very classic theme that Lewis develops, which is that um, God and heaven. Now, Lewis actually uses both of those themes, a person and a place. God and heaven are our heart's desire. Even if we don't realize that, we, we know we're longing for something. And then finally we say, ah, that's what it is. That's what it's all about. We're coming home. And again, this theme of homecoming is just so important because it's picking up on the parable of the prodigal son. It's picking up on the imagery of the new Jerusalem. And it's also a very significant theme in Christian reflection on the New Testament. For example, Lewis may have, um, uh, um, Cyprian of Carthage in mind, Cyprian of Carthage with his very famous um, quote, paradise is our native land. You know, it's about coming home. We're in exile and then we return to our homeland. And the point that Lewis is making in, in Jules' um, conversation here is really to say, look, um, there's something bigger and better than anything we hoped for. It's what we were looking for all our life, but we couldn't name it. We knew there was something we were looking for. We didn't know what it was. And now we've seen it. That's it. Let's go home. Let's go further up. You know, it's, it's very, very powerful. And in many ways, it's all about this idea that, uh, that going to heaven, being with God is what we are all about. It's why we're here. It's what we're made for. And in going home, we are not simply going back to a place, but to a person. And that is why we are here. It's fulfillment of our heart's desire. And for Lewis, that's just so important because, in effect, that gives us hope, knowing that there is a home for us to go to, even in the midst of a very dark and dangerous situation. Now, many people have questions about Emmeth, the Calamine soldier, who um, Aslan says to him, all the service thou hast done to Tash, I account as service done to me. And he ends up in Aslan's country. I mean, what do you think Aslan means? And what does Lewis want us to take away from this? Is he kind of advocating pluralism and, or, you know, the idea that all religions are true? Or, or is there something deeper going on here, do you think? I think what Lewis is getting at here is an idea he would have found in some early Christian writers like um, Justin Martyr, for example, or perhaps Clement of Alexandria, which is that... There are many people who know that there is goodness, know that there is truth, but aren't quite sure what to attach them to. And therefore, in effect, are, are looking for God, may, may believe they have found God, but nevertheless are still really looking. I think that's one of the points that comes out in Lewis's discussion of Emmeth, that actually he's open. You know, he, he, he knows there's something really big. He thinks he's found it here, but he's not absolutely sure. And it's really Lewis trying to say that in the end, in his view, if you are truly searching for goodness and truth and beauty, that is ultimately a search for God. And uh, Lewis, I think, is really articulating the idea that in his mind, that 
is something that brings you back to God. Now, obviously, other people would disagree with that. And also, I hate to say, Lewis is not entirely consistent at this point. But nevertheless, that, that seems to be where this particular quote would take us. I'd imagine that the revelation that the railway accident did actually happen would have come as quite a shock to some readers. I mean, do you think Lewis thinks it's important to talk about these difficult topics with children? Well, I have to say, when I first read um, this book, I was shocked by that. I have to say that actually it really, uh, it just didn't seem to fit in right. And then mm. I thought about it more. I thought, actually, it does. I can see it. But it, I have to say, initially, I was really quite upset by this. And especially so, because this is a children's book. And I felt that that would be really quite distressing. I suppose one obvious response is, well, you know, these things do happen. So we do have to face up to them. But maybe the point that Lewis is making is from this story, you can see that bad things do happen. But maybe there is another way of looking at them. You know, the coming home, all these things. And that actually is part of the Christian understanding of hope. These bad things happen. But nevertheless, there is hope even in their face. So I, I have to say I, I was quite shocked by that. But actually, it is set within quite a dark and, um, uh, and difficult novel in itself. So maybe we shouldn't have been completely taken by surprise. And there's also a sense as well that this is not the end of the story, that actually it's only the beginning of the real story. It says that it's, you know, but the cover page and the chapters will go on and on and on. Now, Alistair, before we finish, would you just give us a little bit of a summary of some of the things that we have learnt over the last series through the, the Chronicles of Narnia? Well, I think we, we've uh, learned several things. One of them is how important stories are in actually communicating what the Christian faith is all about. And Lewis appeals to the imagination. He gives us some wonderful stories, some wonderful analogies, which help us, I think, understand our faith. Secondly, I think Lewis also brings out very, very clearly the importance of the little people, the animals even. And in fact, the saying to us, look, actually, you can make a difference as well. How can your story move the greater story of Narnia ahead? He gives us lots of examples of, for example, we might, you know, if I can give you one very example from this novel, Puzzle the Donkey, you know, who actually seem to be rather more important than we thought. And so Lewis is saying to us, how does your story move things ahead? But I think the final thing that I take away from the Chronicles of Narnia is this. Lewis is saying to us that Christianity enables us to live with hope in a dark and puzzling world in which there are many stories competing for our attention and our loyalty. That's just the way things are. And Lewis is saying to us, look, by the time you finish reading my stories, you realize this is the way things are and you'll know what to do about it. You've got to find the true story, trust it and live within it in trust and in hope. And that to me is very, very important. As you were saying, it's all about this, um, this uh, great story, uh, which goes on forever and every chapter being better than the one before. And, and maybe Lewis is just saying to us, look, if you've enjoyed these narratives, you know, that will make you think, you know, there's a bigger story. We're part of it. And there's even better yet to come. 
Well, Alistair, thank you so much. Um, at the time of recording, I'm about to have a baby, so <laughs> I won't be here for a little bit, but I'll be leaving you in the capable hands of my colleague, Justin Riley. But thank you so much. I feel like there's been so much to learn and there are so many of Lewis's works I now want to read during my maternity leave. Um, but thank you so much for everything, Alistair. You've been brilliant. And thank you for being such a wonderful host. It's been really great to do this. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath, brought to you by Premier. I'm Ruth Jackson, and if you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. You can find out more about this series, as well as C.S. Lewis and Professor Alistair McGrath, by heading to cslewispodcast.com. Next week, we will be broadcasting a special edition of the C.S. Lewis podcast.